I've shared some of what I'm about to share with you before, but um, as some of you know, I'm kind of a Christmas hound. Um, I used to start listening to Christmas music in October, and then irritated my wife, so now I start in November. Um, but we used to have a tradition of, of uh, and it's too early, to three months of Christmas music gets old after a while. But um, we used to have a tradition where we would all pile in the car after Christmas Eve services here at Parkway, and we'd make the 14-hour drive up to Squim, Washington, and, and where we'd share it with her family. And that was always, those, those times were the best Christmases, um, which we haven't had in quite a while because the family home has been sold, and so we celebrate with our own families. But those were some precious memories to me. And um, in that time of celebrating Christmas up in Washington, um, there was one one thing in particular that, that st stands out to me is more memorable than all the rest, and that was the, the, the Christmas Eve dinner. Now, we had to celebrate it on Christmas Day, but we had Christmas Eve on Christmas Day. Um, that there's just this something about gathering around a table, and the tradition was we'd stand around the table, join hands, and, and sing a carol together, or sing the doxology, you know, um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then we sit down around an amazing meal, and, and Deanna has uh, Swedish roots, so uh, that's when everything Swedish comes out, Swedish meatballs, Swedish bread. Um, this really nasty-tasting fish, which I think I've told you about before, called lutefisk. Have you ever heard of it? Um, now, I've eaten a lot of nasty things before. I've eaten worms, and I've eaten crickets, and I've eaten snails. <laughs> Glad my wife's not here. She'd never kiss me again. But um, there's nothing nastier than this fish. Um, you look it up on Wikipedia, and it's described as a gelatinous texture with a, an extremely strong, pungent odor. Gelatinous, jello, fish, all that. Well, that wasn't the high point of the dinner. Um, but what was the high point of the dinner for me and why it was so important, in, and it's still important in my memory, is, is it, was the, it was the time when the whole family gathered together. Now, in one sense, Christmas brought all the family from Washington, Oregon, um, California, and Arizona, everybody together in the same place. But the dinner time was the one time in which the guys weren't out golfing, the women weren't out shopping, the kids weren't out playing. Everybody gathers around one central table. Everybody's there. That's what makes it so special. Everybody is gathered. Not only that, but it's, 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 it's a time when the ordinary activities of work cease. No one's working, no one's going to school, no one's doing homework. You're just sitting at a meal and there's a sense of rest and relaxation um, that doesn't characterize the rest of the time. I've never heard someone say, I'm going to go to work and eat. Typically, when we eat like lunch, you're at work, you take a break, which means there's a sense of rest to it. So everybody gathered, there's a sense of unhurried rest. And then, of course, eating. You think about what eating is. It, 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 um, it engages almost every one of our, 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 our human senses that God gave to us of taste, of good food. Um, God made so many different flavors and so many different spices and unique combinations. Like that's, He made that so that we could taste it. And, and you can see the food. It's, it's beautiful. And, and you can um, smell it all kinds of different aromas, and you can touch it. I mean, in ancient cultures, they didn't eat with knives and forks. They ate with their hands. And uh, as, as they do in India to this day, you pick up your food and you feel it. So it's like engages all of our human senses. Um, and then the best part, of course, is that you're communing. 
You're with people you love, hopefully that you love. Um, I have great in-laws, so I looked forward. We'd uh, start sending emails about three months out saying, hey, only 90 more days till Christmas, and then we'd count down the whole way. That's how meaningful it was, and we all gather, and this is the moment where everything stops, we rest. We commune around this food, which engages all of our senses, and we have this sense of fellowship. And for me, it was almost as if time for a brief moment slowed down. And you tasted just a slice of maybe what heaven is like. And you ever think about how, how important food is to our celebrations? You go on your anniversary, 99% of you are probably going to go out to dinner because there's something intimate about sharing a meal together and fellowshipping. Um, my family's going to have a barbecue this Friday night so the family can gather together. It's, it's around food. We have Thanksgiving come up, coming up, Christmas. Um, it is an important time of everybody stopping, resting, enjoying, and fellowshipping. So it's not by, 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 by accident that in the Bible, um, redemption and God's acts of redemption are often celebrated with feasts. That is around a table. You read through Genesis and, and you get to chapter 18 and you read where Abraham meets the Lord face to face. Angel of the Lord, the Lord. And what does he do? Well, he goes and he kills the fatted calf and he... He throws a feast, and he and the Lord dine together, as it were. Um, the hundreds of years later, when, uh, when God made a covenant with Israel, one of the things he instructed them to do was to have feasts to commemorate and remember his grace towards them. So you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Harvest, and those go by different names in different contexts. But he, he gave them feasts so that they could remember him, they could fellowship with him, fellowship with each other. They could enjoy the food, enjoy God's goodness, a time of rest, a time when the ordinary work stops. I mean, that's kind of what it, what it was. So you come to the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, where the, the wayward, sinful brother comes back repentant. And what does he find but a father that fully and completely embraces him back as his son and then kills the fatted calf and throws a feast, which picks up on this deep, rich theme in the Bible of a feast. And really, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, all of those little feasts and little tables, and the early church, by the way, when they celebrated communion, they didn't celebrate it like we do. They had a feast that was part of it. They called them the agape feast, to remember and celebrate and refresh themselves in the grace of God. But all of those things looked forward to the grand, final, ultimate feast that is spoken of throughout the Bible. And that's really what I want to turn our attention to as we come to the Lord's table this morning, is that final, ultimate feast um, that the Lord is going to throw for his people, which really speaks of our ultimate hope. Now, I realize when we talk about the future that for many it feels disconnected. But I'll tell you, um, I believe that, um, that hope is one of the most transforming things in our present life that we can feed our faith upon. Um, we often live our lives like this. You know, looking at the present circumstances and, and we, we often don't live like this. And when we live like this, the obstacles and the pains and the, the difficulties of life become huge, massive, seeming impossibility, can't get over them. Um, but when hope is fed, and the Christian, by grace, 
through the word is able to remember that, wow, this is the, this is the vision of my life. And that's where I'm going because God promised that I'm, gonna, I'm going there and he will take me there, and that is a certainty. Well, then the present problems, they don't go away, but they're seen in proportion to the grand vision, enabling us to find strength and, and encouragement, abilities to forgive, um, deal with pain in ways that, that still carry a sense of joy because we know where we're going and we know that this is not our home. So that's why I wanted to focus this forward. And of course, that's what Tim Keller does in his book as, as well. And one of the most vivid places where this final feast is spoken of is in Isaiah, um, some 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. I'm just going to read um, these three verses. And it's, these three verses are really like a spotlight after several dark chapters of judgment. You read the chapters before and you're like, wow, there's some bad stuff um, coming upon the world. But here you get a slice of the glory of God's love for his people. This is what he is going to do. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord, Lord has spoken it. Aren't those just amazing three verses in, in, the, in the Bible? It's filled with such richness and such goodness. I mean, it Basically, he talks about four different things that the Lord God is going to do to us because he's that loving and that gracious, what our Father is going to do for us. And one of those things is he's going to throw this feast. That's the first thing that's mentioned. He is going to throw a feast of feasts for his people, of celebration and, and of joy. I mean, backing up to verse 6, that's what he says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. By the way, the mountain back then would have been Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But as I understand the Bible, at the end, Mount Zion will envelop the whole earth. Um, so he is going to throw a feast on the earth for all peoples. And then he says, I love the way it's stated, of, of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. Now that just begs to be imagined, doesn't it? I realize not everybody drinks wine or whatever, but you pick your favorite juice if that's what you want to do. But when he writes here, well-aged wine, now what is that for the Lord? And what's he going to bring up from his cellar? I, you know, I muse about stuff like this. I realize it's speculative. You know, Maybe he corked bottles from the old Eden, and he's been saving them. Now I recognize, again... This is poetic language. Or what does it mean, rich food? I love food. I love to cook. I love learning new recipes. Because I, I, I love food. And it's even better when you go out to dinner and you're, there's a great chef. Um, and you have something that just, you just have to slow down and eat it little tiny bites because you enjoy it so much. So when it says it's going to be rich food, and God is the one who, indulge my poetic liberty here, who's the chef, what will it be? In other words, the point here he's getting at is this is going to be a feast of feasts. 
uh, a celebration of joy to end all celebrations of joy. We can't even get our minds around it, and he's going to throw it for all his people. All people is what it says there. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All gathered from every time and every place. There will no longer be separation or fragmentation, but all God's people united together in one place around this celebratory feast. That's what the Lord is going to do to us. And, and those, those experiences that we often uh, share with each other around the table at Thanksgiving or Christmas, uh, Easter, birthday parties, anniversaries, whichever one is the most meaningful to you, with the convergence, the explosion of, of the senses, of sight and hearing and taste and touch, and then the fellowship around that table, whatever we experience, the best of our experiences, multiply ad infinitum, and, and you'll recognize that these are just little crumbs. The best that this life has to offer around a table is just a slice, a sliver, a crumb, and I think that's part of how God designed it. Oh, it's going to be so much better than this. This is what the Lord's going to do for his prodigal sons and daughters. A final feast. It's promised. It will happen, just as all of his other promises never fail. There's another thing that he talks about here. The feast, there's the unveiling. It's another promise found in these verses. He says here in verse 7, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. There's going to be this unveiling or this uncovering that takes place, which I, I believe is, the, is that covering or veil which separates us from a face-to-face encounter with God himself. In the same way that the veil um, in the ancient temple of Israel was intended to separate and hide. In other words, you can flip that onto the positive um, that God is going to, as a blessing to his people, he is going to dissolve the curtain that currently keeps heaven hidden from us and he is going to dissolve it and we will have a first face-to-face encounter with the living God. In other words, to keep the, the, the imagery going, he himself is going to take his seat at this table with us. That's the unveiling or the uncovering that takes place. He's going to join us. Prodigal son story. Same kind of deal. The, the center of the, the, the celebration is the father's love showered upon his wayward son's return. And the presence, the reunion, the reconciliation, the face-to-face encounter, the embrace. That's what he's promising here is, is an unveiling, uncovering. In other words, God's presence himself um, will take a seat at, at this table. Now, Again, we, we struggle with the imagination or mind to understand what that is. I like the song. Um, I can only imagine because that's all you really can do. I mean, what does it really mean? And what will it really mean for us to experience the fulfillment of Revelation 22, verse 4, which says, And they shall see his face. I can tell you, and this is an honest confession, 
that the rare times when God has in my either quiet times or in this sanctuary, where by the Spirit, through his truth, has elevated my soul to a place where I enjoy him with my mind and my heart, those were and are the best times in my life. They don't happen all the time. I wish they did. Sometimes worship gets to a 60%, 70 80 90 Every once in a while, it's just God like elevates you above the clouds and you're just so overwhelmed with him. But that is an indirect encounter. So what will take place when God's people, their souls are brought into the presence of Almighty God and we see him face to face? It's just unimaginable what will, do, what will happen to the souls of God's people in that moment. I'm, will you stand up? Will you be like the person who watches your favorite football team score or run? Are you just jump to your feet? Or are you going to be so awestruck that you can't even talk? Probably all of those things. Those are the things that I think about. And I, when I think about that, I, I can't wait to see it. And think of the best that human experience has to offer. What are your, your, the memories that you were totally overwhelmed with? Standing in a cathedral for the first time, beholding something um, majestic, like a mountain, watching, feeling the exhilaration of hearing the bat hit the ball and your son hitting a grand slam, and you just can't, can't keep yourself sitting on the bench or the bleacher, holding your baby for the first time, and the sense of overwhelming, I don't deserve this feeling, Making love, which is a biblical thing. All of that is just shadowy compared to what he promises when he unveils his presence before us. And that's, that's where our eyes should be. You know, not here, but there. The feast, the unveiling. There's another promise in here, and that has to do with death. The death of death. Verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. In my teens and 20s, as I'm sure many of you can resonate unless you lost somebody early in life, death seems like an abstraction. But you hit your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and all of a sudden, death is no longer an abstraction. It's real. The hole it leaves, the loss it creates, the gnawing grief that won't go away, the absence it creates. Then it becomes real. And then verses like verse 8 pop out on the page and you're just like, yes. I can't wait for a day in which there's no more fear of death and no more feeling of death. I was reminded of this. Actually, I should say the Deckards and the Overbees were reminded of this this last week. Um, last Sunday, a, a friend of ours passed away from a, a, a rare form of lymphoma. He was 57 years old, amazing Christian man. And we, uh, we celebrated and mourned his life um, on Friday. And he left behind a wife and eight kids. And 
I know there's a hole in Overby's lives and ours, but it isn't as big as the kids that I watched standing in front of the sanctuary and then the congregation was asked to go by and say hi. It's like the, the complete silence of a voice that was once there, of looking at a closet full of clothes that will never be worn by Dean Tracy again, of, of knowing that there's a, there's a smile that will no longer be there. It's no matter how much you try and theologize the pain of death away, it's still there and every one of us knows it. It's just real. It robs us. It takes stuff from us. And it doesn't just take the life of the individual. It takes a piece of the community too. Death isn't just an individual problem. It's a community problem. And every time a close friend or, or spouse or brother or sister passes away, a piece of us dies too. One of my favorite quotes in The Prodigal God is in the feast section, and Tim Keller is quoting C.S. Lewis. And I think the book that this is found in of C.S. Lewis is The Four Loves. And he talks about this very thing. Here's, I'll read the quote for you. This is C.S. Lewis's words. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles, and this is a friend of his, Charles Williams is dead, I shall never again see Ronald. He's talking about J.R. Tolkien, one who wrote The Lord of the Rings. They're all friends. Um, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. In other words, Williams made J.R. Tolkien laugh in a way that only he could make him laugh. And he went on to say that far from having more of Ronald, now that Charles is away or dead, I have less of Ronald. That when William died, a piece of J.R. Tolkien died too. And I believe that's completely true. Just goes to show that death isn't just an individual problem, it's a communal problem. Something in us dies when someone dies. And the Lord, in this verse, says, I am going to swallow up death forever with all of its pain and all of its grief. Now, that means the opposite is going to take place. What's implied is life. What's implied is resurrection. Um, that God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that he is bringing to this feast where he will unveil and unfold his presence are going to rise in victory over this thing called death physically and share life with the Lord. It's what the prophet Daniel wrote about near the end of his, his work when he said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn uh, many to righteousness like the stars uh, forever and ever. That day is coming, um, a day of life, a day of resurrection, a day of a new world, a new creation day of life. He will swallow up death in all of its slivers and its sting forever. This is what our Father has promised us and what he will do. A feast and all feasts. His own presence, direct, face to face, and complete wiping out, termination, a killing of death. And then the last one here, 
in these verses has to do with the, the intimate and personal removal of all pain. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. This is uh, quoted in Revelation chapter 21. But I love the fact that the subject of the verb wipe away is God himself. The, the one who sits on the throne, surrounded by four living creatures, by twelve elders and myriads upon myriads of angels, himself wipes the tears away. He doesn't send his angels to do it, his servants. There's no mediatorial wiping of tears. He does it himself, which speaks volumes of the love of God for his people. To take it away. Now, I can't imagine, as I don't think you can, I can't imagine a world without pain or without the fear of pain. I can't imagine a world in which I don't hurt somebody or people don't hurt me. A world where you don't have to walk on eggshells ever because there is no hurting and no being hurt. A day in which all the regrets of the past are turned to rejoicing and a day in which every pain of the past is turned to praise. And there's nothing but fullness all the time. There's just love without doubt. There's awe without fear. Just simply a life without pain. And he's the one who's going to do this. These are the promises of the Lord to us. Feast of feasts. His presence personally unveiled to us around the great table where death no longer casts its shadow and a place where we don't have to talk about pain anymore. It doesn't become the subject of our conversation. Nothing but goodness and nothing but praise and stuff that makes the heart want to sing and rejoice before Almighty God. And you know what? All of these four promises of a feast, God's presence, the vanquishing of death, and the removal of pain and tears, it all comes to us in one thing. It comes to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed, the night before he died, um, he held up a cup at the feast of Passover. And he said to his disciples, he said, um, this cup is my blood covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup at a feast. And then he goes on to say, I will not drink this cup with you again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. And he was pointing to a future feast. But there would be no future feast if he didn't first lay down his life and pour out his life as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of sins. We couldn't sit at the table if he didn't die. I think it's interesting too. John chapter 2 records for us that the very first sign that Jesus did, at least in the Gospel of John, is he turned water into wine. And it was the best wine there. And I believe that sign was pointing to the fact that he's the one who's going to throw the party. You think about who's the one that takes the veil away between us and the Lord? It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. On the day he died and he said it was finished, the temple veil was ripped, telling us that we have 
by nature of the Spirit right now, full access to our Father. With the hope of seeing him with physical eyes tomorrow or in the future. The promise. When the final veil that separates heaven and earth is, is ripped. But he's the one who accomplishes it. Who's the one who swallowed up death on the cross and in the empty tomb? Well, it was Jesus. And then the one who wipes tears from his bride when he comes. Jesus. It all comes through him and ultimately is fulfilled by him. So we come and... We want to focus our hearts on, on hope, on this vision. This is the vision of the Christian. And today, to stop looking at life like this and to live life like this and to live in these hopes, to let them take root in your heart and mind and, and to meditate upon them day and night so that our vision stays forward, not downward. I'm desperate for hope. The longer I live, the more I see my death looming on the horizon. I think about it at least every day. And it's inching closer as it is for you too. The longer I live, the longer you live, the more the brokenness of the world around us becomes apparent. And you see... Friends pass away, you see marriages that were once intact dissolve, the brokenness, the brokenheartedness, how it affects children, people who take their lives, people who try to take their lives. I need to know that this isn't all there is. And so do you. Because if this is all there is, then we might as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But God has said, I am going to do this for you, as he does done everything else. He just calls us to trust. Trust that I have made this all possible without you doing anything but trusting. And that I am going to take you to a place that is absolutely going to blow all intellectual categories. And I am going to astound you. Trust and hope and maintain that vision. And I hope this morning, if you're one of those people who's like, you know, this is where I'm at right now, and I'm having a hard time with what I'm seeing. Lift up your eyes. It's right here, and it's promised to us. It's already been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to remember the high cost of the future feast, namely the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But I also want us to remember forward Think forward and remember this is, 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 is certain as the sun is tomorrow going to rise. So someday we're going to be around a different table. I don't know how the logistics are going to work with everybody who's ever been saved, but God can figure it out. And we're going to be there. And he is going to stand at the head and he's going to hold up a cup and he's going to say, I told you this was going to happen again. And that's what we need to remember and let our heart be filled with our hearts, be filled with hope as we take the bread and take the cup, remembering not just the Passover in the past, but remembering the feast yet to come that Isaiah described in chapter 25. So let me at this point ask you if you would be willing to, if you're here with somebody, just to turn to them and just to pray over them.
and pray that God would fill your friend, spouse, child with hope. And then switch places. The other one, pray. And if you're uncomfortable praying out loud for somebody next to you, that's fine too. You can pray by yourself. But I think an adequate response is to pray, God, help us to believe this and pray for each other that this hope would fill us, fill us um, with the goodness of God. So will you take a couple of moments and just pray over each other, fill with hope. You can add your own words, whatever. And then I'm going to close this in prayer and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.